Great Lord, our Heavenly Father, we give You thanks and praise for who You are and for all You do. We thank You for all Your gifts to us. We thank You for gifts of creation, for making us in Your image, for giving us a beautiful world to dwell in and to rule over. We thank You for giving us marriage and family and friends and work. We thank You too, Lord, for gifts of revelation. We thank You that You spoke to the prophets of old. We thank You that You have given to us Your Word preserved through the ages, the inspired Scriptures, to serve as a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. We thank You for giving us the message of the Gospel, the good news of our salvation. And we thank You for gifts of redemption, for sending Your Son, O Father, into the world to suffer and die as one of us for all of us. We thank You for pouring out Your Holy Spirit upon Your church to give us new life, to give us faith, to enable us to walk in ways of obedience that are pleasing to You. We thank You that Your Holy Spirit has formed us into a new humanity, restoring in us the image of God. Especially, Father, in this season of Epiphany, may we bring glory to Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we celebrate Christ revealing His glory to Israel and the nations, the light of His love and truth shining upon all peoples. We thank You for the Magi who came bearing treasures to the child as a sign of the nations that would flow into Christ's kingdom, bringing their cultural treasures to be put at His feet. We thank You for Christ's baptism when You declared Him to be Your beloved Son and designated Him to be our prophet, priest, and king. And we thank You for His first miracle at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, turning water into wine, a sign of all He came to do, bringing in Your promised new age, turning the water of the old covenant into the wine of the new. And we thank You, Father, that we get to drink that new and better wine, that new and better cup of the covenant here today. O Father, in light of these epiphany blessings, may we be filled with courage and confidence. May we we seek to show our city and the world around us the glory of Christ. Indeed, may others have an epiphany of Christ's glory when they look on our lives and on our community. All of this we pray through the strong and precious name of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, speak to us from your word and create us to be your holy people who live lives of obedience, filled with the Spirit, conforming to the image of your Son. Amen. Well, the Epiphany season is all about manifestations. It's all about surprises. It's all about seeing something. There's a light that comes down. For those who have read through Luke's Gospel, by the time you get to chapter 4, you already have a lot of epiphanies about Jesus. Even before He was born, God was unveiling to the world who Jesus was in the Gospel of Luke. And so you have the angels who visit Zechariah to announce the birth of John the Baptist. You have the angel that comes to Mary. And they're proclaiming about the life of Jesus, who He is to be. He is the Son of God. But what does that mean? We also see Luke showing us on his birthday the magi and the shepherds and the angels who are announcing to the world that Jesus is here. 
and we're unveiling and learning more and more about who he is. And then during his life, we see Luke unfold and show us different uh, angles of who Jesus is. It's a very fascinating and uh, exciting part of reading the Gospel of Luke is to notice what new thing about Jesus have I just learned. And there's a lot of fun going on. Luke is crafting. He's giving us little seeds of something that later he's going to show us from another angle and we're going to see it again and it's going to reappear. And so there's all sorts of themes about the ministry of Jesus. We're getting epiphanies of who Jesus is. Well, Jesus Christ, one of these themes is that he is the unveiled prophet of God. That's what we're going to look at in today's scripture is how Jesus is the prophet of God. Now, in the context where we are in Luke, Jesus has been baptized and he's been in the wilderness tempted and he stood up to that test. We could call this uh, unveiling the priestly aspects of Jesus's ministry. We see what we're going to study today about how Jesus is the prophet. And then after this, in chapter 5, we see Jesus gathering his disciples to himself. Peter, who falls down on his feet while Jesus is sitting down preaching the word as the king and announcing how he's the king over all creation and his disciples are going to rule the earth and letting fish illustrate this by jumping into the nets. And so we have that uh, priest prophet and king going on in this context and what we're looking at is the prophet that's being unveiled so the text tells us that jesus came home to nazareth and we learn something here that's very fascinating we learn about jesus's customary practices what he would do how he would worship god we're told that on the sabbath day he goes into the synagogue he reads the scripture and then we have a sermon that he preaches on it Jesus' prophecy is liturgical prophecy. I've been in situations before. I attended a church in college where uh, in order to, uh, for the church to celebrate the prophetic aspect of the God we worship, they had a prophecy mic that was set apart uh, in the audience. And people would feel the leading of the Spirit, and they would come and approach the mic, and there would be a group of elders there, usually two or three, Uh, who would approve the message and interrupt the service in order for a prophecy to come. That veers more in the direction, even though there's uh, some structure to that, to an unliturgical or unstructured uh, prophecy. But what we have, what Jesus teaches us here, is that prophecy can be liturgical. Reading God's word and preaching a sermon on it is the prophetic ministry that the church does. Uh, The microphone that... Jimmy spoke from this morning when he read the word to us. This microphone that uh, preaches the sermon, this is where the prophecy comes. So we do have a prophecy mic, but it's up here. uh, And it's where the pastor preaches from. So Jesus gives us an insight into his liturgical practices. And there's a clue here into this message of of what, uh, that Jesus is the prophet, what Luke is unveiling. There's a clue that Luke wants us to read this passage and learn from it how Jesus is the prophet of God by the fact that Jesus reads the word and preaches, because that is prophetic ministry. Go read through uh, the books of Jeremiah and Isaiah. You hear them delivering the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. You'll see in your Bible quotations, and then you'll see them expounding it. That's the prophetic ministry that they're doing. 
the ministry of the word is a prophet's ministry. So Jesus Christ, the prophet, is back home in Nazareth. And here are the words that he says. He looks back, and who does he quote? He could quote anything, but he quotes a prophet. He quotes Isaiah. Again, more insight that Luke is directing our mind to associate what he's communicating with the prophetic ministry of Jesus. He quotes Isaiah, but if you want to go back, it says he unrolls the scroll and found the place where it was written. Well, actually, if you unrolled the scroll, you'd have to unroll it to two different places because he links two passages of Scripture from Isaiah, out of Isaiah 61 and out of Isaiah 58, and puts them together. Another clue that Jesus is a prophet, this is what prophets do. They create, they re-speak Scripture. They take what was said before and they re-say it and they combine and culminate the prophecies uh, into their present day fulfillment. So here's what Jesus reads. Remember, he's getting ready to say, this is about me. So this is what Jesus, when he's reading Isaiah, uh, is thinking. And this is what he sees about himself. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Jesus here is showing us his vision for the Christ person and work. This is his mission statement, you could almost say. This is what he's announcing. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Well, yes, he is. He's on him like a dove. Descends from heaven and you can see it with your eyes. He anointed Jesus to proclaim the good news to the poor. The widow who heard uh, about Jesus telling her that her prayers would be answered by her persistence certainly hears that good news comes to the poor. Freedom to the prisoners is Jesus' mission. And he goes and he exercises demons out of people. And he frees people from uh, obedience to a legal system that is not earning their salvation. Recovery of sight to the blind. He finds the blind man on the roadside near Jericho and he tells him, receive your sight. And he's healed. Set the oppressed free. Well, later on in this chapter, he rebukes the fever of Simon's mother-in-law. Or you could think about the Samaritan woman. All these people who are oppressed that Jesus sets free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Perhaps the, a beautiful illustration of that, uh, the one that stuck out to me, is when he, after uh, his resurrection, he goes to his disciples who had scattered while he's being crucified. And what does he say to them? Peace. He gives them peace. Well, Luke didn't just write Luke. He also wrote the book of Acts. And the two go together. And so the spirit of the Lord that Jesus, the prophet, knew was about upon him also goes into the church. Jesus is the prophet, and the words that he speaks here not only define his future ministry that we just sketched out, but they also uh, look forward to what is going to happen. And we have the book of Acts showing us how this is fulfilled. We know in Acts how in Pentecost the Spirit of the Lord descends upon the disciples. And he pours out his Spirit on them. We know how Peter and John go to a lame beggar and tell him, you know, this poor man, they give him good news. They say, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I can give to you. And they preach to him the gospel. 
We know how, and again, one of Luke's masterful narratives, how there's a jailer of a prison at Philippi, and Paul and Silas are in prison, and they are set free. And yet, who the real prisoner of that story turns out to be the jailer and his household, who Paul and Silas, though they are set free, stay. And they preach the gospel to him, and they baptize his whole household. We see the recovery of sight to the blind in the book of Acts when Saul is blinded on the way to Damascus, goes to the house of Ananias, and scales fall off his eyes. We see the oppressed free when the whole city of Ephesus, who is worshipping in idolatry the great goddess Artemis, becomes the Ephesus to whom Paul writes the book of Ephesians. We see people proclaim the year of the Lord's favor in the epistles. These disciples of Acts, uh, the people we read about, Peter writes in his epistles. Uh, Paul writes about how now is the day of salvation. The year of the Lord's favor is upon us because Jesus the prophet spoke into existence and sent the church out to fulfill this mission which he himself started. Well, the Spirit of the Lord continues past the book of Acts. He's creating history through Christ's prophetic word. If you want to look about how the Spirit of the Lord is affecting the history of the world, just start with Augustine's Confessions. Look at what he says about the Spirit of the Lord directing his life or announcing good news to the poor. Think about one of the earliest letters we have of a description of the church that is written by someone outside of the Bible is a persecutor of the church. Pliny is wondering what he should do, and he's trying to understand how he should punish Christians. So he writes a letter to Trajan, and it's a very uh, short letter, but in it, uh, in order to investigate Christianity, he's a little troubled because um, the people are so well-behaved, and he's wondering about uh, punishing them and what he should do, how they should have to renounce their faith. He finds two people who are deaconesses in the church. And who are they? Who are the people who are responding to God's message and form the church in the early centuries? These two deaconesses are slaves. These are poor people who have received the gospel. The Edict of Milan, which tolerated Christianity in the realm of Rome, gave freedom to people who were prisoners. Recovery of sight to the blind. John Newton's amazing grace not only gave him sight to realize that what he was doing was wrong in chattel slavery, but also it gave him uh, a new vision for how to live his life, and he became a member of the Clapham sect with William Wilberforce who fought against slavery. Set the oppressed free. There was a pastor who from a Birmingham jail one time was in prison. <clears throat> but he had a message of freedom and he convinced the world and spoke probably louder than anyone else in his generation to stride towards freedom. And that's Martin Luther King. And tomorrow we certainly will uh, celebrate his day in our calendars. Tomorrow is MLK Day. And proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, that's something that countless lips have done. Thousands, millions of amens to God. Christians whom God has helped throughout history, uh, who in their very lives and their obedience to Him testify to this work. This prophetic vision is something, too, that we are doing today. In our very serious liturgy, we take our liturgy serious, we notice how the Spirit of the Lord is upon us 
by having the Eucharist and by speaking the Spirit to one another. We proclaim the good news to the poor by having a confession and an absolution. The gospel goes out among us. Freedom to the prisoners, we say, the peace of the Lord be with you and also with you. Exchange the peace among one another. We have enlightenment by listening to the word and taking time to expound it, recovering our sight. We are setting oppressed people free by praying in our intercession on behalf of the world. And we are proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor by singing it and by obeying this teaching that we come together and learn as a church. So Jesus' prophecy that he looks at here defines his ministry It also builds the church, guides human history, and certainly instructs our worship. But this work is just beginning. There's a future to the history. His prophetic work is too powerful to just only go to one or two people. It goes to all humanity. So future generations must remain in the spirit, not get trapped and closed in four walls of the spirit of the age who would trap us in a prison of time. But we remain in the spirit of eternity. We proclaim good news to the poor. We don't flatter ourselves to say that, well, we are not like other people. We see other people and we share with them the good news. We concern ourselves with people who are prisoners, who are stuck in sex trafficking. One example of many. And we pray for their freedom and seek ways to foster it. We pray and work for the recovery of the sight to the blind because not everyone sees Jesus as the Christ. Some people don't even see the physiological signs that separate gender and make anything of it. We pray that the Lord will continue and complete the work of setting the oppressed people free of children who are dying in abortion. This is work that is ongoing and that we must continue to take up. And we also work towards proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor by building up churches across the world, be they in Peru, be they churches on our prayer list who exist across the United States, be they in Ukraine. This work that we do, and work that continues for us to do in the future. So, Jesus quotes this passage out of Isaiah, and he kind of drops a bomb on his audience. He closed the book, it says, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Notice what happens. He closes the book. The case is closed. Isaiah was prophesying about a future prophet. Jesus Christ is that future prophet. So he can close the book of Isaiah and say, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Then he began to teach them about how this was fulfilled in their hearing. What this is, is this is Luke's version, you can look at it as, of John's, the word of God is incarnate. This is the incarnation of uh, Jesus Christ as the word of God. The word that Isaiah spoke is now incarnate in the person, Jesus Christ. He is the word made flesh. Jesus is the unveiled servant of Isaiah's prophecy. Now, on that note, you might think, happily ever after. Jesus has come, the prophet has arrived, but we probably know too much about the history of prophets to know that that's the case. Jesus is the man of sorrow. 
His words travel out, and they prepare the way for his ministry and for our ministry. But how do people respond when we stand up for Christ in the world? Luke says, at first, they were speaking well of him, and they were wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. Then they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? True to the form of a prophet, Jesus is rejected. It's a little ambiguous at first. I mean, at this point in the narrative, when we hear them say, you know, they're wondering at his gracious words and they seem excited about it. They're all staring at him. But then they say, is not this Joseph's son? You kind of take that. That could be a quite legitimate thing to say. But actually, that's a term that throughout Scripture, um, for instance, in uh, John chapter 6, this is something the Pharisees say of Jesus. It's something they say to say, this is a man and not God. And so they're rejecting him in these words. But Luke is letting it kind of hang out there playful because he's big on this theme of um, how people with their lips versus with their hearts are responding. So with their lips, it may sound fine enough, but the heart's going to reveal by their later actions, it's going to reveal that their heart is uh, farther apart from him. And so they reject him and they are blind. There's also another way that we can see their rejection of him before we see them throw him off, try and throw him off a cliff. Uh, and that's in their eyes. You can follow their eyes in this passage. There's a dramatic development going on with their eyesight. You know, Jesus puts his eyes on the scroll. He finds a certain spot. Then he speaks and he reads and he talks about recovering the sight of the blind. He's very concerned about people's eyesight. And then all of their eyes are fixed on him, and they're marveling at his words, and yet they are blind. They're staring at him, and they see him with their eyes, but they are blind to who he is. They're blind this whole time to what he's really saying. And so, another, true to the form of being a prophet, Jesus is rejected. This is how the ancestors treated their prophets. That theme we learn in the Beatitudes comes up here. So they reject him. Verse 22, they say, Is not this Joseph's son? And they say it in disbelief, like Zechariah's unbelief, not like Mary's uh, genuine concern. That was why we read Psalm 12. It's because there's no loyalty at all among these people. They are neighbors. They're Jesus' neighbors. He's uh, lived among them. This is his hometown. He would have been on their t-ball team. This is his. He's a Nazarene. Uh, from Nazareth. But there's no loyalty to him. They're neighbors who are flattering with their lips. Oh, these are gracious words. They're marveling, but they're harboring deception in their hearts. And then the Lord, Jesus, is speaking about how he arises to defend the needy and the poor because they are being plundered. And as we will sh- soon sh- see, that the Lord does protect the needy from the wicked. And so the people reject him. And their anger starts to boil up. He gives a sermon on what he read, a sermon about uh, prophecy, about how he's the new Elijah and the new Elisha. He points to how he is there to help widows and lepers, just as Elijah and Elisha did. There's corruption in Jerusalem that creates a bad situation, and he's there to rescue people from it. He also angers them because he's telling them that he serves Gentiles here. He's telling them that Elijah and Elisha go out to 
uh, in the land of Sidon, and they go to the Syrian. They're going outside of Jerusalem. Whereas these Nazarite, these people in Nazareth, are saying, what you did in other places, do here. Kind of want to capitalize on Jesus' ministry and make him the hometown hero. And, oh, sure, yeah, you know, he's from Nazareth, this Jesus guy that does all these great things. Come and see him and stay at my bed and breakfast. They're thinking uh, along those lines, thinking about how to how they can benefit from it, not how to serve other people. But Jesus is concerned about reconciling the whole world to himself. His concern is not their self-interest or even his own personal prestige. Christ's concern is fulfilling God's mission. He's following God's will and not man's. The irony here is that these fools are kind of blind. No prophet is acceptable in his hometown what Jesus tells him. He says, you're probably going to quote this proverb that a proverb, um, you know, what you did elsewhere, do here. But truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Well, that's a prophecy. Jesus is here, the prophet, and he prophesies to his hometown that a prophet is not acceptable in his hometown. And in fulfillment of his prophecy, his hometown rejects him. He's exactly right. Nazarite rejects him as a prophet. More proof that he's a true prophet. Their response actually validates Jesus' claim. The angry people are fulfilling the word of the prophet. And they attempt to throw him off the cleft of their hill. Now, when we hear Jesus, when we hear the word of God come out among us, we must respond with fear and obedience and faith. Even today, we must give the counsel of Jesus... When we give it to others, we must give it with boldness and humility and faith. Because prophecy is something that, because we are in Christ, extends to all believers. We talk about the priesthood of all believers. That doesn't mean that there's not a special office of a priest. What it means is we can all serve one another. In the same way, there's a prophecyhood of all believers. And we prophesy to one another by speaking the truth and by taking God's word and speaking it into situations, and by fulfilling what Jesus has outlined as his prophetic ministry, by doing these things. We speak as prophets. We do that when we sing the Psalms. We do that when we memorize Scripture, or when we speak truth in our work, or in our home situation, or anywhere. When we find the right word and speak God's word into a situation, we are acting as prophets. Memorably, in my own life, when I was little, I remember one gentleman uh, was staying at our house for a Promise Keepers conference. And I was little. This was uh, the first house we lived in, so I was under six or seven years old. And this guy at the breakfast table, who I didn't know very well, spoke prophetically into my life simply by preaching the gospel to me. I remember him looking at me and asking me my name, which I thought was funny because he's staying in my house. How did he not know my name? So I told him. And then he said, uh, well, do you have a cigarette? And I said, you know, who is this guy? And he's just making a joke. He was just having fun. And then he asked me if I knew Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And his eyes drilled into my soul, and I had no clue what to say. This guy was speaking the word of God to me. And I can remember that. I can't remember ten other things that happened in that house. But he chose that morning to speak those words and to challenge my soul. And God used that. How are you? How are you speaking the word of truth in your life to others as well? 
Whatever the situation is, be like Christ. Be bold in speaking God's word and looking and applying it uh, in your in your life. Now we read First Thessalonians uh, chapter two as well. That passage has so many parallels with this one. It's very interesting. It's like Paul is making an application to the church in Thessalonica based off of this scene, just like we are doing. He says, we thank God constantly that you received the word of God, which you heard from us, and you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. They're accepting God's word. It's like Jesus had come to their town through them and and spoken the gospel, and they're accepting it. It says it is at work among you. Certainly Jesus' message is at work among the church, as we illustrated. For you, brothers, became imitators of the church of God and Christ Jesus that are in Judea. They look like Christ. They look like Christ's church in Jerusalem, which are built and modeled after Christ. They're imitating Christ. So they're accepting him and uh, what he models here, they are approving and it transforms their whole lifestyle. They also accept that they will suffer for it and be oppressed. Paul tells them, you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. How do they oppose all mankind? By hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. So we see later in the New Testament that this vision uh, that Luke writes influences the way Paul lives among the people in his church. He goes to a new town. He goes to Thessalonica. He sees the people there. How does he interpret what's going on? He looks very real, realistically at their situation and he finds, well, guess what? That happened to Christ as well. So also, when we apply this, when we ourselves uh, take up our prophetic ministry, we look to Christ to understand what is going on, to understand, uh, are we behaving right? When this opposition comes, are, are we being righteous? How closely are we imitating Christ? Christ is our standard for how we live this. Because he is the true prophet. So all things look to him. Now, that Thessalonians uh, verse kind of ended on a sour note because the wrath of God has come upon them at last. So also in this text here, we see the people in the synagogue after Jesus preaches this sermon are filled with rage. They got up and they drove him out of the city. They don't want him in their town. They led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built. It's a pretty interesting point. The brow of the hill on which their city had been built. It's like the foundation of this city. And they want to throw him off of the foundation of their city. But passing through their midst, Luke tells us, Jesus went his way. Reminds us of several things. One thing it reminds us of is that God is sovereign. He's using the rejection of Jesus here to show himself as the true prophet. He's letting all this happen in order to instruct future believers in Thessalonica, in Birmingham, in order to instruct us that uh, this is the way it goes. We're able to see um, a pattern set before us 
that repeats many times through history. And so we're able to find comfort when we're standing up for something that is right and people are opposing us. We're able to know that, you know, if we get killed for our faith because we're doing, we're speaking out against some oppression, um, well, they did that to Jesus and they did that in Thessalonica. So it's uh, uh, set there for our encouragement. But we also see in these last few verses that Jesus Christ, <laughs> this is the irony of this, Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone of the church. The people of Nazareth want to kill him. Where do they want to kill him? They want to kill him on the cornerstone of their city. They don't accept the kingdom of God. They want the kingdom of Nazareth. And so they take the cornerstone for Christ's church and they throw him out at this very key point. They try and throw the cornerstone of Nazareth, who is Jesus Christ, off of their cornerstone, off this cliff. They want to dash him to pieces. But it's actually the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ, who dashes people to pieces. He's the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. They're trying to rid him out of the world, and they push him out. But what does he do? He goes and sets up his kingdom over the whole earth, which Nazareth is just a little part. One final thing. We'll close with this. We see them reject and kill Jesus. Uh, want to kill Jesus. Of course, later on, this is Luke showing us how Jesus is going to be received later on in his ministry as well as he continues his prophetic office and as he preaches the gospel uh, throughout the land and he's going to be crucified. People at Nazareth wanted to do that from the very beginning when he preached. Um, And it's going to happen. And Luke gives us very subtly um, a foretaste of that in just some of his vocabulary. It's very easy to miss, but at the very beginning of this text, we're told that Jesus stood up. And it uses a very specific word for standing up. It uses, in fact, the same word in verse 29 that is uh, used when everyone in Nazareth stands up to reject him. And it uses this word just one more time in the Gospel of Luke, and it's when Jesus stands up on the cross. This is the word for resurrection. We're learning here that their rejection of Jesus Christ leads to his resurrection. They see him as an insurrectionist, as a guy trying to uh, cause trouble in their city. And so they kill him. They want to kill him, and eventually he does die. But that actually accomplishes God's purpose of redemption of his enemies, of these very people, of his very enemies um, that come unto God by him. And he, um, then in the resurrection, uh, that's how we see this truth displayed, is in the resurrection. So, today, when we celebrate the Eucharist together, and when we come together as a church body to be fed by God, uh, by his word, we're receiving the very word of God that Jesus Christ has demonstrated among us and spoke into existence to lead all of human history towards conforming into his own pattern, towards becoming more like him, guiding the church, guiding all Christians to become in Christ prophets of the Lord. And we are strengthened by his very body and blood, by his very death, by the wrath which Jesus as a prophet creates among people and leads to his death. That accomplishes his resurrection, which is our hope. 
The hope of glory that he preaches among us becomes the weight of glory that we carry as his obedient people. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for becoming among us to teach us about yourself and for continually unveiling and manifesting yourself in new and exciting ways. May the words of your truth that are in your holy scripture come into our lives, transform us to be more like you, lead us by your Holy Spirit. This we pray. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who faithfully fulfills all of his promises, we thank you that you sent Jesus into us in the fullness of time. We glorify you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We ask that you enable us to receive your word with eagerness. And we give many thanks that you invite us to this, your table, each week to fellowship with you. You are the great one, O God, and worthy are you to receive our praises. You rule on high with a mighty arm, ready to save, and your eye watches over your congregation. You guard us with love and strength. You disperse your enemies and bring them down to the dust. But those who look to you are safe. They live and do not die. They awake to the morning's light and take joy in the work of their hands. We praise you today because you are our God. We gather together to unite our hearts in this praise. And we ask that you would give each of us the grace to worship you in spirit and truth. Let us mimic the angels as they fall before you. We are your servants and we call upon your name. Let your glory be exalted and your being manifested among us. Save and defend your church, universal, purchased with the precious blood of Christ Jesus. Give to her pastors and ministers endowed with your Holy Spirit and strengthen her through the Word and the Holy Sacraments. Make her perfect in love, and in all good works establish her in the faith delivered to the saints. Sanctify and unite your people, O Lord, in all the world, that one holy Catholic and apostolic church may bear witness to you, the God and Father of all. Lord, today we pray for CREC churches across our country. We pray especially for the new church plant in the San Francisco Bay Area, and blessing for Pastor Gabe Wetmore. Lord, we pray for blessings upon all the churches of the Athanasius Presbyteries. We pray for all Christian Protestant denominations to be filled with the knowledge of His Word and to teach wisdom and spiritual understanding to all peoples. Lord, we pray for our leaders, for President Obama, for Vice President Biden, for the U.S. Houses of Congress, and Lord, for all others who serve on the U.S. Supreme Court. We pray for our joint staff and all military leaders. And we pray for the defenseless and vulnerable in our nation and the poor and oppressed and unemployed, that we will be a light to them especially. In the same manner, we pray for our local church, that it so may be guided and governed by your good spirit, that all of us here may be led in the way of truth and hold the faith in the unity of the spirit, in the bond of peace, and in the righteousness of life. We pray that you would grow us in spiritual maturity and conform us further to the image of Christ our head. We ask that you would make us good servants to our community, surrounding us, and that they would see in us the love of Christ. We pray for our pastors and officers, that you would guide and direct them in your ways, and that they would lead with wisdom. We pray for our marriages, that you would strengthen the bonds between husbands and wives, and that you would give, give, give us wisdom as we seek to raise godly children. We commend all to your fatherly goodness, any who are any way afflicted or distressed in mind, body, and state, especially for Yvette's dad's brother, for Grant Peterson, for Ashley Hamblin, for Murphy Maddox, Brad Steffler, Miles Harrison, Lindsey Scogan, for Kia Shuku, for Ashton Motes and Michelle Stevenson, 
for Bethany Laughlin and for friends, the Finley Evans friends struggling with MS and for Sarah Claudia Tillman, who's recently struggled adjusting to blindness. We pray for all those enduring cancer, especially for Brenda Jordan and Kendall Touchton's father, Devin Tarter, Joanne Perry, Patsy Sadler, Nathan Hamilton, Gregory Morris, and others. We pray all those grieving the loss of a loved one, for our aging parents and grandparents. We pray for blessings upon Jonathan and Megan Miller, who will soon be moving to Georgia in February, and for Timothy Winstead, who leaves for basic training this week. We pray for all those who seek more work or better work, and for the singles of the church, for those among us who desire to have children, and for our expectant mothers and their babies. And Lord, we summarize all these prayers now in the prayer your Son and our Savior taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. 